Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series, Israel 2018, where Dr. Newfeld reflects on his visits to the Promised Land with a message today entitled, The Triumph of Jesus. Jerusalem has been ruled and conquered by many different people. It was destroyed by the Babylonians and then later ruled by the Persians. It was then ruled by the Greeks and then for a period of time, the Jews gained their independence and ruled Jerusalem once more, only for the city to fall into the hands of and be ruled by the Romans. Then for a time, it was ruled again by the Persians and then by the Byzantine Christian Empire then the Muslims, then the Crusaders, again the Muslims, then the Ottoman Turks, and then the British, and finally now it is again ruled by the Jews. Conquerors have come and gone. It's all a part of the unique history of that place. But today I want to speak about a time when the city was conquered by Jesus. I know it's somewhat strange to think of it that way, but I believe the Bible leads us to think that way. One of the most powerful images of the authority of Jesus found in the Bible is recorded in Revelation 5, verses 5 to 6. In the right hand of the one seated on the throne, that is, in the Father's right hand, is a scroll sealed with seven seals. And as the passage goes on, we find that the scroll contains God's judgment on the earth for breaking covenant with her creator. But who is worthy to take the scroll and break the seals and thus bring about judgment on the Father's behalf. And that's where our passage from Revelation 5, 5 to 6 begins. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slaughtered. The juxtaposition of those two images is striking. Only the Lion of Judah is worthy. I mean, this echoes Jacob's ancient blessing on his son Judah that the ruler's staff shall never depart from Judah until that one came to whom that ruler's staff rightfully belonged. He is destined to rule the nations with the rod of iron. This is the Lion who sits on David's ancient throne to whom the Father said, Ask, and I will give the nations as your heritage and the ends of the earth as your possession. I mean, this is an image of authority and unbreakable, everlasting power. And then as John looks for the mighty ruler who alone has authority to break the seals, that is, to execute judgments on the nations on the Father's behalf, he looks and sees a little lamb. It looks as if it has been slaughtered. It's smeared with blood, and it looks helplessly abused, bruised and wounded, smitten and afflicted. This one alone has the authority to open the seals and govern the nations on the Father's behalf. This one alone has triumphed and is King of kings and Lord of lords. The image of Jesus in Jerusalem that many of us have is, is rightly an image of dark suffering. Jesus opposed by the religious authorities in the temple. Jesus betrayed by one of his own. Jesus sweating drops of blood, arrested and beaten, then forced to carry his own cross through the streets of Jerusalem, and finally nailed to a cross where he is mocked and ridiculed. But this, as Colossians 2.15 reminds us, 
is the greatest triumph the world has ever seen. For in so dying, he disarmed even the demons of hell. The synoptics, that is, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only mention Jesus' last trip to Jerusalem during the time of his passion. But John mentions three other occasions in which he actually went to Jerusalem prior to that great victory. But for our purposes, we will focus on that last great trip to Jerusalem, the the place of his great triumph. There are at least five sites that every Christian going to Jerusalem will want to visit. The first is to spend time on the Mount of Olives. In the Old Testament, this was the place of David's escape route as he fled from his son Absalom. But of course, this is the place where Jesus would have crested the hill on Palm Sunday as he rode his donkey into Jerusalem. From this place, Jesus taught about his second coming. We call that the Olivet Discourse, and it's recorded in Matthew 24 and 25. And on this very location, one finds the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus spent the night in prayer and sweat drops of blood, and where Judas the traitor led a band of religious authority and Roman guards to arrest Jesus and drag him on to trial. All those memories flood over us as one sits on the Mount of Olives. The second site to visit takes us into the city itself, to a, to a place known as the Southern Steps. There are a series of stone steps just south of the Temple Mount or Mount Moriah that in the time of Jesus were actually used to enter into the temple. And if you want to walk where Jesus walked, the southern steps, although they have been restored, I mean, surely they represent the actual place where he walked. Just around the corner to the west, archaeologists have discovered and removed a great deal of rubble from, from the temple's destruction and found a street underneath those stones. This ancient street at the time of Jesus led from the temple to the praetorium, so this is most likely where Jesus would have walked after he was arrested. The third site is the traditional location of the upper room. Although what one visits today was built during the Crusader period, the archaeological remains date back to the second century when there was still a living memory of where Jesus celebrated the Passover. Even though this is certainly not the building where Jesus met with his disciples, it does represent the Passover meal where Jesus announced the new covenant in his blood. And the fourth site to be visited is the traditional Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering, which ends at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Although the Via Della Rosa cannot be identified as the place where Christ carried the cross, It represents that pathway for many believers, and as I've said, it ends at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. According to one account, in A.D. 326, Helena, the mother of the Roman Emperor Constantine, discovered the actual cross of Jesus on that site. Apparently thereafter, they discovered a cave which was said to be the actual burial chamber of Christ. And a church has been built on that site in 326, and it represents what many think to have been the actual burial site of Jesus. Now, that original church used to have a courtyard with a cross erected on the stone where it was believed that Christ was crucified. However, that original church has been destroyed, and and what stands in its place, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, was built during the Crusader period. Now, I, for one, find that church dark and usually very crowded. It's decorated in a way that seems a bit overwhelming, and and this is personal for me, but but I don't find it overly inspiring or spiritually uplifting. So many candles and incense and relics. 
Well, nevertheless, one should go. And that brings me to the fifth site, and it's been called the Garden Tomb. Again, we can't say for certain exactly where Jesus was crucified and buried, but many believers find this to be one of the most precious places to visit while they're in Jerusalem. In 1883, British General Charles Gordon noticed a rocky outcropping not far from an ancient tomb. The cliff had a number of recesses, and when you stand back from it, it does seem to resemble the eye sockets of a skull. And Gordon also noticed that this rocky outcropping was located just outside of the walls of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. And and when you look at it, it does seem to resemble what the four gospel writers mention as the place of the skull. Now, to the tomb not far from that hill. General Gordon discovered the tomb was a part of the remains of an ancient garden. And in this garden, he discovered the remains of a wine press and a large cistern which would have held about 200,000 gallons of water. And because water was in such scarce supply in Jerusalem, a cistern was absolutely necessary to sustain such a large garden. It's actually over two acres. And hence, there can be no doubt that this tomb and garden must have been owned by someone who had means. That is, it must have been owned by a wealthy man. And what's more, there, there can be no doubt that the garden is old quite likely goes back to the time of Christ. Now, some argue that it's highly unlikely that a body has ever decayed in that tomb, and that's strange because on the inside, there are two benches, but no signs of bodily remains, and every chemical analysis that has been done there shows nothing of human remains. And furthermore, there's graffiti on the walls referencing the Alpha and the Omega and Jesus being the anchor for our souls. And this leads to a belief that Christians had worshiped there at some time. And outside of the tomb at its doorway is a clear channel in which one can roll a stone that seals a tomb. But the stone is missing. Here's the question. Could this indeed be the original site of both the place of the skull and the place of the burial and resurrection of Jesus? Well, the details seem to fit so well, it's it's almost eerie. But the majority of scholars believe that this is not the tomb of Christ, but that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is more likely. But perhaps that's good news. Given the history of veneration of so-called sacred sites, rather than the veneration of Christ, maybe it's best that we don't know. Now's the time to be thinking about a family getaway this coming winter. Time to get away to enjoy fun, fellowship, laughter, restore yourself while being spiritually refreshed. That's right. Join Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway for our fifth anniversary Laugh Again Caribbean cruise. Sail the seas, enjoy the beach, spend time in worship with special musical guest Rika, and take in special opportunities to share in our morning devotions and special events and activities. This is an opportunity for the entire family and a time to celebrate God's incredible faithfulness. So join Phil and friends this coming February 3rd to the 10th, 2019, on one of the Royal Caribbean's greatest ships, the Oasis of the Seas, as we sail the Caribbean. Call us today for details at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at laughagain.ca. (laughs) 
But the garden tomb is a special place nonetheless because there you get the most realistic picture of the events surrounding the death and resurrection of Jesus. The garden has been visited by countless pilgrims to Jerusalem. One can stoop down and walk into the tomb and imagine John outrunning Peter but standing at the outside of the empty tomb while Peter bursts in and finds it empty. And one can imagine Mary overwhelmed with grief after Peter and John have left all alone and encountering a man she, she assumes is the gardener, only to hear him say her name, Mary, and then whirling around and finding her Lord and Savior standing very much alive. The garden now has a number of semi-private areas with benches where, where groups gather together to read scripture and sing and share communion as the elements of the Lord's table are provided by those who keep the garden. But it's also there at that place where we pause to remember a most precious truth. Christ died for our sins. There's more. You know, Jerusalem reminds me of the death of Christ, but it also reminds me that, that death has lost its sting that a grave in that city stands empty, and for the first time ever, death did not conquer. It was unable to hold its victim that this resurrection is the first fruits of many that will follow. Jerusalem, with all its amazing history, will forever be remembered primarily because this is the place where Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead. See, I want you to imagine sitting in some place by yourself in the garden that houses the tomb that seems so much like the place where Jesus was raised from the dead. And your mind is taken up in the agony of Christ's prayer on the Mount of Olives that you've just visited, in the upper room where he broke bread with the disciples, at the foot of the Temple Mount where they took him to stand before the Sanhedrin, and in the horrifying details of his agony as they nailed him to the cross on the place of the skull but you've just stood at the doorway of an empty tomb and you're reminded that the cross was not the end of the story, but only the beginning of, a, of an audacious story of unending hope. And as you sit there, your mind is taken up in the resurrection of Jesus. You remember 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then you consider three verses later in verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And as you think about it, you begin to imagine his body stepping from the tomb, a new kind of human life, a life in which his body is made perfect. It cannot die. It cannot suffer illness. It does not age. And it will live in perfection for all eternity. What would he actually look like? This is the first fruit of a new order of humanity. This is what the future looks like. And as you think about it, you begin to understand why it is that Jesus' followers both recognized him and didn't. At times, they seemed to recognize him instantly. And in John 20, verse 20, he came and stood among them, and all John says is that they were glad it was the Lord. After all, as Paul indicates in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, at one time, he spoke to more than 500 at the same time, and they all knew that it was him. And at other times, people seemed to struggle to believe it's him. And so he showed him his hands and feet. And then as you sit in the garden tomb, your mind becomes fixated on Jesus stepping from that tomb. All the suffering in his face, the hardship he endured, the, the times of grief when he was so inwardly in turmoil that he sweat drops of blood that body that has borne the struggles and sufferings of the world, has, has been restored 
to something that is a part of a new order of creation, an undying perfect body. And again, you find your mind drifting back to 1 Corinthians 15. But this time it's taken up in verse 53. But this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And again, you imagine him stepping from the tomb and imagine his mortal body having put on immortality. And and what is that? And as you try to understand what it must have been like for him to step from the door of that tomb, you remember his post-resurrection appearances. He still had a real physical body, even his own physical body, because you remember the words of Thomas, unless I put my hands where the nails went and place my hand into his side where the Roman spear carved out that groove, I I will not believe. And you remember Luke 24, verse 39, Jesus said, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And there's Jesus stepping from the tomb and he has flesh and bones. He, He has substance. There is a physicality to him. It's not as if his body lies rotting in the tomb and and his spirit lives. No, no. The the dead body was first energized with life, but it was also transformed into something that is imperishable. And yet this imperishable body ate breakfast on one occasion. You think of John 21, in which John tells us that the third time Jesus revealed himself to all the disciples at once— He had just directed the disciples to a catch of fish at Capernaum, and and as they came ashore, he had built a fire and prepared their breakfast to eat with them. Now, how they must have eaten together and talked on that occasion. And as you contemplate Jesus stepping from the tomb, you, you think about what this says about the physical creation itself. God could have raised Jesus as a pure spirit, but he doesn't. God affirms the goodness of the physical world or the physical creation and the goodness of your own physical body. And with that, your mind turns back to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You remember the idea of first fruits from your reading of the Old Testament. At the beginning of the harvest, they would bring in a first fruit and offer it to the Lord with a sure knowledge that this was but a representation of an abundant harvest that was to follow. And Jesus stepping from the door of that tomb is but the beginning of a harvest of bodily resurrections, stepping out from the doorways of countless tombs of men and women who have trusted in this one who broke death's chains, humiliating death by disgracing its power. And in that moment, all the dread and fear of death simply vanishes. The life to come is not made of an other-dimensional experience. Instead, it's physical. The life to come comes with flesh and bones, just like what Jesus said. The life to come comes with sights and sounds and smells, with breakfast, fellowship, with laughter and long conversations, and the touch of your hand grasping the hand of another with the experience of feeling the wind in your face and living a fully human existence with all that it means to be fully human. That's what came out of the door that day. Not just the assurance of existence after death, but the absolute irrefutable evidence of bodily existence. As Job said so many years before, and I'm reading Job 19, verse 26, after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. And whatever the spiritual body that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 15 actually means, 
It is a physical body that is created to live eternally, a real physical body animated and empowered by the Holy Spirit that lives with joy forever to the glory of God. That brings us back to one of the great spiritual lessons to be learned in Jerusalem. Many men and armies have conquered that city, but no one conquered this city like this man. And if you go back out of the garden tomb, indeed back out of the old city of Jerusalem and climb back on the Mount of Olives, you'll find the remains of several churches from years ago on a part of a structure that is now a mosque. And according to tradition, this is the place where Jesus ascended to heaven. But like the garden tomb, no one can be certain where Jesus ascended to heaven. But we do know that this happened in the vicinity of Jerusalem. For Jesus told them not to leave Jerusalem after he ascended. So I guess somewhere near the Mount of Olives is quite likely. In fact, I think it more than likely it's a virtual certainty. But at any rate, we know that he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And they were just all staring into the sky when suddenly two men in white robes stood by them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus will come in the same way as you saw him go up into heaven. <laughs> Indeed, the Bible tells us that when Christ does return, the very first place that his foot will touch down is on that very same Mount of Olives. And that means, of course, that the history of Israel and the history of Jerusalem is far from done. Yes, the greatest conqueror ever rode, rode into that city 2,000 years ago, conquering sin and Satan and death. But he will return. And there is yet one more great story awaiting to be told in the city of Jerusalem. John, like you, I've experienced these places, and everyone has a very special sense to them. But of any of these places, did, did one particular one just really just impress you or overwhelm you? Yeah, I, you know, even though I mentioned the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the Garden Tomb, you know, for me personally, um, it is the Mount of Olives. I can imagine Jesus sitting on the Mount of Olives and explaining to his disciples how the temple will be destroyed and what will the coming of the Son of Man be. Uh, I just look at the Mount of Olives and into the Kidron Valley, and I can imagine David uh, fleeing for his life from Jerusalem. I can imagine Jesus walking uh, there as he comes up to the, uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, just my mind is just filled with, um, I don't know, just the contemplative nature of the Mount of Olives. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us tomorrow again for our last day in the series, Israel 2018, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. As we enter a new season of ministry, we want to take the opportunity to reaffirm our determination to stand firm in our mission to effectively teach and engage our nation with the Bible and to do so using every effective tool at our disposal. Your support of the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada make it possible. So in a season of shifting values, we're asking you to stand with us. Your gift sustains and increases the impact of our daily program with Dr. Newfeld, our ministry to young adults in doubt, and Laugh Again's message of hope and joy found in Jesus. So please consider supporting the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada today. And if you've enjoyed Dr. Newfeld's new Israel 2018 series, we want to send it to you as our gift, no strings attached. 
So call us today to send your donation or to receive Israel 2018 on CD for free. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.